Warning, this show is about true crime and its contents may not be appropriate for children. This is the Crimecasters Network with Alicia Sophias and Ronnie Dahl. Two rogue reporters breaking newsroom rules to take you behind the crime scene tape. Cheers, Crimecasters. Today's case focuses on the murders of a mom and dad, a dying message left in blood, and a suspicious son who police say had a motive to kill. But did they get it all wrong? Ronnie, you have spent so many hours digging into this story. And this case has more twists and turns and never-ending questions. Questions I put to the prosecutor, the detective, and family members. So do the unanswered questions lie in the dad's dark path? Well, let's start at the beginning. On October 7th, 2006, it's the first Saturday of the month. It's always a very busy day at RJ Meats. It's a butcher shop located at the popular Eastern Market in downtown Detroit. Like he did every Saturday, Ryan Jabali shows up to the family business ready to get to work. But this Saturday, right away, something is different. His dad, Ron Sr., isn't there, which is very unusual. He's always the first to arrive so he can accept the day's delivery. But his older brother, Ronnie, is there, which is normal. He's usually the second to arrive. So Ryan asks, where's dad? And Ronnie Jr., his brother replies, he doesn't know. When he got to work, their father wasn't there. He tried calling and texting, but got no response. So as the morning goes on, Ryan keeps trying to get a hold of his parents when there is no answer on their cell phones or on their house phone. Yes, people still have a house phone. He calls his girlfriend, who doesn't live far from his parents, to check on them. She goes by the house, and nobody answers the door. So as she's walking away, she notices a little bit of blood in the driveway. Mm. So worried, Ryan, because he's still on the phone with her, gives her the garage door code so she can get inside the home. I can't imagine the panic and the adrenaline going on. And when she opens the door, the Jabali family nightmare begins. On the floor lie the bodies of 58-year-old Ronald and Christine Jabali. Blood is everywhere. Ryan's girlfriend begins freaking out, of course. She's screaming and crying. So Ryan just grabs his keys and takes off for his parents' house. On the drive there, he calls 911. And when he arrives to his parents, police are already there. They confirm they are both dead. They've been murdered. Ryan calls his brother back in Detroit to tell him, hey, our parents are gone. But... Instead of closing the store and going to be with his family, Ronnie keeps the shop open not only for an hour or two, but actually for several more hours. Uh -uh. In the afternoon, employees are told about the killings. And remember, R.J. Meats is a family business. So both Ron Sr. and his wife, Christine, work at the store. The news is a shock. One of the employees finding out about the murders at that time Ronnie and Ryan's sister, Nicole, she was working the front counter that day. 
that's just the beginning of some of Ronnie's odd behavior, and that's an understatement. When Ronnie finally does close the shop to go meet up with family members, he makes a couple of stops along the way. Brace yourself. First, he stops at KFC. Not the drive-thru, he actually goes inside. Then he swings by his new home that is undergoing renovations. Back at the Jabali home, investigators begin the gruesome task of processing the crime scene. New Baltimore is a very small town with a population of just over 12,000 people, but its police department has very experienced detectives. Right away, investigators believe the murders, they're not random. Ron and Christy knew their killer. First, there is no forced entry and nothing of value appears to be missing. Ron's wallet, Christine's jewelry, her purse, they are all undisturbed. Leftover pizza is still on the stove. Three pieces, though, are missing. Ron and Christine are known neat freaks, compulsive neat freaks, to the point Ron ironed his money. Can you say that one more time? I know. Who does that? Ron ironed his money. How do you know that? uh, Because in talking with the detective, and this is one of those little tidbits that never came out during the trial, but I think it's an important part of the story because it talks to you and it tells us who they were. Yeah, and that is so important in an investigation. But there are other clues leading detectives to believe the killer is no stranger, including where the Jabalese battered bodies were discovered. So Ron is at the bottom of the steps, and Christine is farther inside the garage near the back of their Jeep, indicating to police that Christine came into the garage to confront the attacker instead of running back to the house and calling for help, which you would expect someone to do if they didn't recognize the person. They also know this because she was eating a cookie at the time. They found it on the floor near the crime scene along with her slippers. Another sign she had to know the person in the garage. And Alicia, that's not all. In her dying moments, Christine left a message written in her own blood. The possible letters S-S-E-U-I-C. Straight out of a movie. And we're going to put the picture of this message on our social media so that you can see it. But... What did it mean, if anything, at all? It's a clue investigators and FBI experts spent hours trying to decipher. Baltimore PD Detective Ken Stevens thinks Christine was trying to say, son, Jr. Hmm. The reason the message is so hard to make out, someone tried to clean up the bloody message with a mop in the garage, smearing the letters making it harder for detectives to collect DNA evidence. Now, here's one thing I don't think people understand. You may not know this as the public. I didn't know this, uh, by the way, until I spoke with this detective. They can only submit so much evidence for processing. The mop and the bucket, of course, were on their list, but sadly, their testing yielded no conclusive evidence. Usually we hear about cases where they don't have enough to test, and this was almost the opposite, right? Very much so. 
it was such a bloody mess. There was so much to test. But in talking with the detective, one thing he said to me that made it easier inside the home was a fact that they were compulsive and neat freaks. So that made it easier for them inside the home, outside the house and the garage where the murders happened was hard. Makes sense. One other quick thing before we move on, those letters, you said that somebody cleaned it up, but there are still letters remaining. Did they just miss them? How did that happen? Because what happened, some of the letters were under the Jeep. Mm. And so detectives believe they were easy to miss. So if I'm going back, I'm in a frantic moment. I'm trying to mop up and clean up the scene. I'm only going to do what I see, not what is under the Jeep. What a crazy clue. Another clue detectives studied, the brutality of the murders themselves. Both Jabalis sustained multiple blows to their head. They were stabbed a dozen of times on top of that. Their throats were cut. This is a classic case of what investigators call overkill, indicating the murders had to be very personal. After digging into the lives of Ron and Christine, going through phone logs, bank records, interviewing dozens of people, and chasing down hundreds of leads, including a deep dive into Ron Sr.'s business dealings and possible connections to the underground mob world, detectives keep coming back closer to home to Ron and Christine's oldest son, Ronnie, not just because of that odd behavior the day of the murders, but because of, get this, statements he made to family members after his parents were slaughtered, telling them, you know what? Maybe I did it. Maybe I killed my parents while sleepwalking and I just don't remember. Detectives say Ronnie harbored a hatred for his father because his dad was always the man in control. And Ronnie had a secret. He was a drug addict. In an interview with police months later, Ronnie comes clean telling them that trip to KFC was to pop some pills. Then he went to his home under renovation so that he could stash his Vicodin pills. At that time, he had about a six to 10 pill a day habit. Police believe they had their killer and they set out to prove it. Their theory, Friday, October 6, 2006, Ron Jr. stops by his parents' home. He meets his dad in the driveway. He wants to talk to him about his mom's meddling in the business. See, she had fired an employee that week against Ronnie's wishes. The conversation moves to the garage. He asked his father to tell his mom, hey, I love mom, but can you please tell her not to come to the meat store again unless you're with her? Now, detectives theorize that doesn't go over so well. So the two get into an argument and it escalates with Ronnie beating his dad to death with a metal doorstop. Police say when his mom overhears the argument, instead of calling for help, she comes to the garage to intervene. And Ronnie attacks her. Stunned by his actions, Ronnie leaves, closing his parents' garage door, then drives to his home under construction to change his clothes. Later, he returns to his parents' house in the overnight hours, notices the bloody message, and that's when the detectives believe he grabs the mop to clean it up and to turn off the lights. 
Yeah, if this is a mob hit, I don't really see them going in and uh, mopping up after. But Ronnie does seem to have an alibi. His wife testifies the timeline doesn't fit. Deborah Jabbily says Ronnie got home sometime after 8 o'clock. His nieces and nephews were spending the night, so they made a bed for the kids on the floor. They put on a movie. Ronnie went to bed around 10 o'clock, she says, and she did not hear him get out of bed and leave the house. And Ronnie did not have any scratches or marks on his body. Remember, this was a brutal crime scene. The Macomb County Prosecutor's Office makes a very rare move to convene a grand jury. On June 26, 2009, Ronnie is arrested and charged with the murders of his parents. The case goes to trial in October, lasting seven days. After just over an hour of deliberations, the jury returns a not guilty verdict, Mm -hmm. citing the lack of DNA evidence. So with no physical evidence, why would the prosecutor go forward with the case at all? Next, an in-depth conversation with Steve Kaplan, former Macomb County Assistant Prosecutor. You're listening to Crimecasters Network. It's up to the prosecutor's office to decide to go forward or not with charges in a criminal case. And in this case, like many cold cases, justice is a gamble. Here's Steve Kaplan. Some cases are continue to be warm where there are leads, where there are tips, where the progress is being made. And when progress is being made, and it's an older case, meaning more than six months, the prosecutor's office will continue working in conjunction with the detective in trying to build the case. Here, the homicide occurred on October 6th of 2006. And beginning in the year 2010, we realized, Ronnie, that this case was not improving like vintage wine over time. Therefore, either we would issue a charge, a homicide charge against Mr. Jabbily, or we would essentially close the file. So with that, what was the evidence that you thought you had that was going to lead to a conviction? Good question as to the evidence we had. Number one, motive. He had a motive to kill at least his father because of concerns by Ronnie Jabbily of perhaps being cut out of the business or not being promoted or not receiving the fruits of the business. That, That was a motive. Secondly, he had opportunity he can't account for his time during the time frame when his parents were killed. Thirdly, he has the wherewithal, meaning he's strong. He has access to knives. That was an interesting issue at trial. He's a butcher, an owner of a meat, meat market, so to speak. And he, he knows how to use knives, not that you and I don't, but he's skillful with knives. So means, opportunity, and motive were there also lack of another suspect because police department reviewed potential suspects like perhaps those who were in business with Mr. Javali, the deceased. And we could not find anyone who had a motive to kill him or anyone who had threatened to kill him. And this definitely wasn't a case of um, a robbery because nothing was stolen. Right, right. This is a personal homicide and no motive in terms of money, and therefore 
it's not a stranger. It has to be somebody who knows the family. He gained access to the home. There's no forced entry. So it's not a stranger on stranger crime. So there was a lot of talk made about the possible message that the mother left in the blood. How much did that play into this case? It's good and bad because, yes, it appears that somebody, namely Christina Jabali, had tried to leave a message for posterity in blood on the concrete floor of the garage. Perhaps it's nothing. One doesn't know. And how do you read into it? How is it bad? Because it didn't say clearly RJ or Ronnie Jr. Because she knows her son's name. On the other hand, some experts in reviewing it said it appears that she's trying to write RJ. Anytime there's ambiguity for the jury, it works against the prosecution because prosecution has to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. So as the prosecutor assigned to the case as the trial prosecutor, Ronnie, I didn't devote much energy to that evidence because I knew it was ambiguous, but we presented it and, and let the jury decide how to use it. Sometimes when we win or lose a case and we talk to the jurors afterward, they'll focus on a matter that nobody thought was important except to them. And how much do you think his drug habit played into this case at all? It, it, could, it affects the case in many ways. It, it links him circumstantially. One, he needs money. He has a drug habit. Secondly, it distorts his thinking. It's not positive for him. When he finds out his family, his parents have been murdered, he kept the store open in Eastern Market in Detroit. And I, I, his sister was working there as well, because this is a family business. Yes. That's odd to me. If, if, you know, and we know that in some of these situations, we think someone should act a certain way. When they don't, it raises red flags. But to keep your store open, knowing that your parents have been murdered, did that also add to the red flags about Ron Jr.? It has three effects. Number one, it shows bad character on his part. You and I are not being judgmental when we say that, but we know that a reasonable person upon finding out that his parents are, are dead or deceased and that they were savagely murdered would close the business and drive as fast as he could to their home to find out what happened, to offer comfort to other, other relatives or other loved ones. By, so that showed bad character on his part. Secondly, it reinforced our belief that he's the culprit which is important because we have to have a belief in our own hearts and souls that the person committed the crime in order to bring it forward. It's, that's not a legal, it's not a legal standard. But thirdly, it was circumstantial evidence that he did it. He knew he did it. He didn't want to face it. He didn't want to see that his, his parents in the distressed state that they were in, namely deceased and bloodied and savagely murdered. So those are the three factors that we considered important. Now, if I may, when jurors are deliberating, you might have one juror who says, he did it. Look, he didn't visit his home. He kept the business open. And you have another juror who might say, he's in a state of shock. So you don't know how a jury is going to interpret that evidence. And I think about this as well, because do you think if you would have had a different jury, 
maybe you would have got a conviction out of this? Yes, it might be if we tried this case 10 times, we win seven, seven out of 10, eight out of 10. Our office was emboldened by recent success in trying cold case homicides. We were on a winning streak, so to speak, and maybe one shouldn't characterize prosecution and defense as a winning streak. because It's not a game. But the point is that we have prevailed in many circumstantial homicide cases leading up to the Jabali case, which gave us confidence that we would be successful in what is a circumstantial evidence case. So coming out of that, you, it's a seven day trial and you put your heart and soul in a trial such as this, you know the details inside and out and it takes a jury, what, just over an hour? So it was about an hour and 15 minutes. So you, so you remember the exact time? Oh, years I later. know this, yes. What's going through your mind as the prosecutor while they're out deliberating? So in a case like this, a quick verdict is usually a not guilty verdict. Why is that? It's not a matter of, there are three eyewitnesses, they said the guy did it, they were sure, guilty. Or the defendant confessed, guilty. In this case, in order for, this is just my assessment, in order for a jury to find him guilty, they would need to review evidence perhaps for a half a day or one day. So when I received uh, the page, I think it was a, no, it was a text back then in 2010, October 2010. When I received the page or text that the jury had reached a verdict, I knew that it was an acquittal or not guilty verdict because they wouldn't have reached a guilty verdict in less than two hours. Now he's just free, right? Yes. The case remains cold. Cannot be tried again. And if he had called a press conference immediately after the case on the courthouse steps and said, I did it and I have a video and here's how I did it, we could not charge him again. Are there certain cases that hang with you years later? This was the most disappointing verdict in my career, 26 years as a prosecuting attorney. And I know the detectives involved in the case were dejected by the outcome because they, they felt that Ronnie had committed the crime. And the fact, the, the savagery involved, the uh, barbaric nature of the homicide affected everybody. How do you do this to your parents? Continue the conversation with your hosts, Alicia and Ronnie, on any of your favorite social media platforms. Find us at Crimecasters, and let's talk true crime. Okay, Crimecasters, grab a glass. This is a part of the show where we go off script to take you behind the scenes to talk about the case the way we do as we're investigating it. Ronnie, <laughs> there is so much to talk about here. The message written in blood, literally like a movie. I can't stop staring at it. But first, let's talk about Ronnie's brother and sister, because if that was my brother, mm, but do they think he did it? They, I think this is a surprising part of this case to me, because I spoke at length uh, with Ryan and even more so with Nicole, and they both think their brother is innocent. Wow. Right? Um, how do you look at them the same? And if I can kind of lay out Ryan's case, he believes that his parents' murder could be connected to an old drug arrest. Now, according to court documents, and I have to give out 
a shout out to the Macomb County. Uh, you have clerks. a fat stack in I front know. of you right now. <laughs> I know, but it, but really, uh, the Macomb County Clerk's Office. They were uh, pretty amazing. Like you send an email, and then they're like, oh, okay, because these are really old case documents. Give us a couple days. If all clerk's offices, mm. I'm dreaming right now. Right, uh, fantasy of worked mine. <laughs> in the same way. We be we would all be so much happier. But now, according to court documents, in November of 1984, Ron Sr., his younger brother Roger, and a couple, they were friends, got busted for possession and selling cocaine and marijuana to an undercover officer. How long ago? We're talking 1984. Oh, okay. Right? So Ryan, though, believes his dad worked to deal with prosecutors gave up names in exchange for a lighter sentence. And 20 years later, that person or persons came back for revenge. Now, I have to tell you, I tracked down the defense attorney who handled the case all the way back in 1984. He's a very well-known defense attorney here in the city of Detroit. He's handled major cases. He says, that didn't happen. Ron didn't cooperate with law enforcement. He pleaded guilty, admitted he was selling drugs to support his habit, and it was just part of the deal that they worked out. Now, Roger, Ron's younger brother, didn't stay out of trouble. He continued to sell drugs to members of a couple of biker gangs and ended up in prison. Maybe that's connected to Ron and Christine's murder? Well... I'm here to tell you, police looked into that theory as well. That along with others, and they say absolutely 100% nothing panned out. Despite all of that, Ryan still believes his uncle may hold the answers to his parents' murders, but he died in 2020 of cancer, taking any secrets that he may have to the grave. He would have. He would have said something before he died. No, he believes that his secrets, mm. he didn't reveal them because it was a way to protect the family. Um, of course, we don't know. One other possible theory is this, like we said, could be connected to the underground mob. Um, other people say... The mob doesn't clean up after themselves. They are going to come in if it's a hit. Right. They're coming in and I don't even think they would kill the wife. If this was a hit on Ron, they're going to kill him and they're out. They're not going to come back hours later. Didn't they also like leave the garage door light on? I mean, it's just I can't I can't go there. And, and, and so with that, too, I have actually looked into the possibility. Could this be a mob hit? There is a connection to the underground world and the mob world when it comes to the business dealings in the meatpacking industry. And there have been I some mean, big I watch Sopranos. I know. No. Come on. I know. Listen. But, but it's real. It's, it, it's Detroit. I get it. But it all comes down to this. Mom left a dying message in blood. Okay? She left a message. She wanted to out whoever did this. And it's not fair for her that we can't decipher this. It drives me crazy. I keep staring and staring and staring. But I almost think 
that these letters aren't as important as three other letters that solve the case for me. You want to know what those letters are, Ronnie? What are they? K-F-C. Your parents get murdered. You keep the store open for hours. You don't even tell your sister that your parents have been murdered. You're able to work at a meatpacking facility, handing out, doling out meat to the public while your parents are lying there dead. And then you stop at KFC? I, case is solved for me there. So can I talk to you too uh, quickly? One of the things in speaking with the detective that he said was so much was put on this message that was written in blood. Steve Kaplan in his interview said, hey, from a prosecutor's standpoint, since we couldn't decipher it, it didn't mean much for us. Wow. But for the detective, the lengths he went to, one of the things he told me is he got out a twister game Mm. and he laid down like he was on the twister game and twisted his body and tried to see what it would be like if you were dying writing. Yeah, because you wouldn't be like taking a bird's eye view. You would be down there. And they know for sure that Christine scrawled that ominous message. Yes. So, but one of the things is so many of the pictures were taken from above. And he goes, no, we have to look at it. I think we should recreate that, Ronnie. Her angle. I need to do that because I'm staring at it and I can't make sense of it. So I want to, I actually want to try that. But from the standpoint of the brother and the sister, I will say it. They 100% believe that their brother is innocent. He did not do it. In fact, um, Ronnie Jr. and his wife, they donated some money to the Innocence Project uh, following this. But one of the other uh, tidbits, because I love talking to the detectives about these cases. You're going to talk about the two things that people, it's going to shake people at home getting behind the scenes of this. This is awesome information. Well, one of the things, the detective was saying that they put a listening device at the gravesite of the parents. Crazy. Which gives them an insight as to the people that are visiting the gravesite, what they're feeling, what they're thinking. And did Ronnie visit the gravesite? He did, along with Nicole, along with Ryan. And they said, like, Ryan cried. By the way, Ryan did pass the polygraph. Nicole was kind of all over the place. Um, her polygraph was not um, conclusive. Let me ask you, Ronnie. Did Ronnie take a polygraph? I have a feeling I know the answer. They tried to get him to take one several times. So no. he didn't. Um, They were scheduled multiple times. But one thing you do have to keep in mind is he is a drug addict. He's taken drugs. So if he were to take a polygraph, it really wouldn't have been reliable as well. Now, 
Here's Listen. another little tidbit. <laughs> You're so about, nice. I know. You're so nice. But but in all You're on, so understanding. Right? Um, and they said his drug habit, because we're talking a couple years in between when his parents were murdered and they actually brought the chargers. Wait, so, he's clean now, right? I don't know if he's clean now. I mean, supposedly he's clean now. Why doesn't he go and take a poly? I don't he, know. He was clean after the trial. Why not go and clear your name once and for all so you don't have annoying podcasters like myself out here thinking that you still did it? Well, his drug habit increased from the beginning of the investigation towards the end. So any polygraph that they would have conducted was not going to be accurate. What they did do, though, is they found a detective that looked very similar to his dad to conduct an interview with him. Oh, I love the psychological twist. Right? It's, hey, if we think this is about his relationship with his dad, so they found a detective that looked like him, and they said, hey, we want you to interview him. He comes in for the interview. A few minutes in. He, <gasps> he takes off? He, he bolts. Oh, okay. And, but we have to say at the end of the day, he was found not guilty. So to the um, Baltimore Police Department, and I will say to Crime Stoppers, at one point in time there was, um, they put up over, I think it was over 100 grand uh, for a reward. And so, again, one of the things with Ryan is he said that Crime Stoppers got a tip that a guy was in a court hearing and he heard this guy threaten his dad. And he called in the tip to Crime Stoppers. So I checked with Crime Stoppers and they said, well, we're anonymous. We don't know. We would have turned it over. It's kind of a dead end. Is there a possibility just knowing the mob world that this could be mob connected? Yeah, but then at the end of the day, what kind of business dealings were you involved in? No. And the son to this day maintains his innocence. Ronnie is still running the business in the Eastern Market. Ryan left but went to work for the company his dad worked for, took over his accounts as a salesperson. So there are some people that benefited. They always ask, did anyone benefit from the death? And it sounds like the children may have. And Nicole has had a tougher life following the transition of her parents' murder. She was very close with her mom. And she's had a tougher time. And I know you've gotten close with her also. Process and, and she truly believes her brother didn't do this. They believe this is connected to the mob. And when you really kind of dig into it, could it be? It could be. But in the eyes of the prosecutor, they got it right. They just did not have enough evidence to get a guilty verdict. However, officially, in talking with the New Baltimore Police Department, this is still an open case. So if anyone has any information, of course, you can call the New Baltimore Police Department, but I will say they're probably not spending a lot of time, money, or resources. That person is not going to be answering a lot of calls. 
Now, next, our resident true crime genius will weigh in with this week's sidebar and also our closing arguments. It's time to get schooled by the teen sensation of true crime. Here's our resident boy genius with this week's sidebar. Hi, I'm Ryan Kester. I'm an 18-year-old pre-law junior at the University of Texas at Dallas, and since I was nine years old, I've been researching cases, attending trials, and pouring over thousands of pages of court documents and police evidence, all in the name of true crime. On today's sidebar, we're gonna be covering a very complicated legal topic known as double jeopardy. Many people have probably heard of double jeopardy, and many people may even think that they know what it is, but it's a very complicated topic with many layers of Supreme Court rulings and legal theories surrounding it. The general rule is that double jeopardy is a constitutional protection that prevents you from being put in jeopardy or on trial for the same crime twice. And I think that that's a good foundational knowledge of what it is, and so it's probably easier to explain what the exceptions to that are, especially because so many of us will look at a news report and think, okay, they were already tried, why are they getting a new trial? Or the jury was hung, they weren't acquitted, they weren't convicted, how is it constitutional for them to be retried by the prosecution? And I think that that's the most common question people have about double jeopardy. And so it's important to know that that is actually a, always has been, a hot button legal issue in relation to an 1824 Supreme Court ruling, which ruled that it was constitutional to retry a defendant who had not been convicted or acquitted in the case of a hung jury, because the Supreme Court ruled that a defendant isn't put in jeopardy until a verdict has been rendered by a jury, whether it be not guilty or guilty. So under that logic, if say in the case of the Jabali murders, if I am found not guilty of a crime, I cannot be tried for that again. But if I'm found guilty or there's a hung jury and for whatever reason the prosecution elects to retry me, they have that constitutional right. However, some other rulings have called into question that ruling because they have determined that a defendant is put in jeopardy as soon as a jury is sworn in. So there are so many different facets to double jeopardy in that regard. Even then, jurisdictional differences can come into play. For example, in 1993, Dora Garcia Cisneros out of Brownsville, Texas, was convicted in a state court of soliciting the murder of her teenage daughter's ex-boyfriend as revenge for a high school breakup. However, the state appeals court overturned her conviction and in doing that actually acquitted her, preventing and barring the prosecution from retrying her. But exactly four years and 364 days after the murder, the FBI knocked on Dora Cisneros' front door and arrested her on federal charges of using interstate and foreign commerce to solicit and facilitate a murder for hire. The reason she could be retried, that stemmed from the same incident, because she had used a telephone during the commission of the offense. And as soon as you use a telephone or an interstate highway, it becomes federal jurisdiction, which is separate from state jurisdiction. That means that if you commit a crime that is a federal and a state offense, meaning it violates both laws, you are open to be tried in both courts. There's no double jeopardy protection between those jurisdictions. So if you hypothetically committed a drug trafficking offense, you could be tried in federal court for a drug trafficking charge and in state court. And if you're acquitted in state court, you are still open to those federal charges. It's a very important distinction and it can be kind of confusing. 
That's all the time I have for today. I have to get back to studying for my economics exam, but I'll see you next week for another sidebar. I will begin closing arguments with uh, my take on this case. I think we know where I lie on this. You know, the real tragedy here is that a respected couple in the community is dead, not just dead, murdered, not just murdered, overkilled. They need justice. Police say they know who did it. Prosecutors say they know who did it. I say they are right. You know, defense attorneys love to say that you can't judge someone based on how they grieve. Everyone grieves differently. But Ronnie, you lost me at KFC. Your parents were just murdered. And instead of getting there to grieve with your family, you keep the meat shop open, go on with your day like nothing happened. You're chit-chatting with customers. And when it's closing time, you stroll out of there and stop for chicken. Then to your house, then you make it to the crime scene. Okay, then you refuse to show up for your polygraph, act weird at the gravesite, run out of the room when the detective looks like dad. And there are no other viable suspects. I will keep staring at this message in blood, but I'm pretty sure it implicates one person. That's and my time. <laughs> time is up. And I will say, we don't know if he actually got chicken. He went in, used the bathroom. With that, at the end of the day, it's just like the prosecutor said, Steve Kaplan, it doesn't matter. We rolled the dice and we lost. He could stand out today and say, I did it, and they couldn't do anything. So why is it he hasn't or his family members haven't? Could there be something else there? I think so. But I also don't believe that there is going to be any effort or any money spent on trying to actually officially solve this case because in the prosecutor's mind and in the detective's mind, they got the right pay person, rather. Uh, they just didn't get enough evidence for a conviction. It happens. But they're not going to spend more money or more time. Now, if someone out there knows something differently, step up. And oftentimes, it does take time to help solve some of these mysteries. So if, in fact, Ronnie Jr. didn't do it and this was connected to the mob in some way, someone needs to start talking. And you can do that by calling the new Baltimore police because, according to them, this is still an open case. All right. I'm going to keep staring at the message. <laughs> I know. And with that... We do want to say we like to end the show remembering the victims in all of this because I think sometimes they get lost in the details. So to Ron and Christine Javali, we'd like to raise a glass to you and we hope that one day you get the justice you deserve.